viewpoints expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and uh, I have a wonderful guest uh, with me this afternoon who I'm going to introduce in just a moment, um, but a couple of quick show notes. I'd like to give out always our um, digital platform if you are listening to the show and you'd like to learn more about our upcoming guests, and some of the events that we are involved in. I'd love for you to check us out at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And uh, an exciting announcement, we're going to be releasing an interview that I did, an on-the-road segment for our on-the-road series. Uh, I was in New York last week with Gretchen Carlson, who will be coming out with her book on October the 17th be fierce and uh, I'm very excited about this interview and we will be releasing it um, on that same date October the 17th so be sure to check out that on the road segment um, at womentowatch.net as well and lastly be sure to follow us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook as we put all kinds of wonderful inspirational content out there and also some updates on our lineup, and of course the podcast if you happen to miss the live show. So I'd love to introduce my very special guest this afternoon, who is calling us from New Jersey. Her name is Pat Fiore, and Pat Fiore is the founder of Fiore Brand Communications and Consultancy. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is really exciting, and and fun to get to speak to you, Susan, so thank you. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you took time out of your schedule. I know how incredibly busy you must be um, with this particular uh, company that, that you own and run and have for so many years. And uh, I'm looking forward to perhaps getting some tips from you in this interview uh, for our, our own brand. Yeah, our own brand, Women to Watch. Uh, but I'm, you know, I, I received your information and I was reading your bio, and of course I related immediately to uh, your your describing growing up with your your big Italian family, and uh, having married into a big Italian family myself, a lot of uh, what you spoke about resonated with me. So I'd love for you to just take a few minutes and talk about your background growing up in Mendham, New Jersey, as the oldest of three girls and surrounded by uh, lots of cousins and and grandparents. Well, actually, I live in Mendham now, but I grew up in Orange, New Jersey, which is um, pretty much not too suburban, pretty urban, and a really kind of wildly interesting neighborhood. We were raised, I was raised by a village. So in those days, it wasn't just your family. It was your family, your friends, the neighbors. Everyone was involved in your 
in raising you. So everyone was in charge of protecting you. Everyone was in charge of following you and watching you. So it was very difficult to get in trouble in those days <laughs> because everyone, had, everyone, every neighbor had their eye on you. We lived in um, in uh, two fam- multi-generational families living in multi-family housing, which yep. was wonderful. And of the families that lived on our particular street, which was Beach Street, and there was no beach, believe me, on Beach Street in Orange, there was, we had the, we were lucky enough to have a driveway. And that driveway between the two houses was kind of our domain, uh, gave us a little bit of space to play besides the streets. Um, and that was really fun. And we got to bring our neighbors in and do the things that we did as Italian families, big long tables and lots of food all right. the time. <laughs> we had a garden, we had a garden mm-hmm. and that garden was shared with everyone. Um, my grandmother was born in Italy and, and as was my grandfather and in that multi-generational family, multi-family housing that we lived in were my paternal grandmother, grandfather, and all the siblings, all the children that they brought into this world, and all the grandchildren. So um, I recently had a, an opportunity to go back and take a look at my, my apartment, the apartment we have when I was a child, and I was astounded at how small it was. Mm. When I looked at, when I got inside and it had been renovated, very modestly renovated, um, it was probably less than 500 square feet. We had three rooms and my sisters and I slept in what was an alcove in the kitchen on a three quarter bed till we, till we were 14 years of age. So it's pretty incredible. We had, but we had everything we needed. It was, I can't remember ever wanting for anything. Except possibly a closet. That would have been nice. <laughs> Other than that, there really weren't any strong desires to have anything additional. Um, my, if you want to talk about strong women, we had nothing but strong women in our family. My uh, paternal grandmother was in charge of everything and everyone. Um, every every moment of the day, she was had a plan for everyone's energy to be used in a productive way. So I think that came from working on a farm in Italy and, uh, and keeping everyone aligned and doing what they needed to do to be productive in this world. You know, it's amazing when you look back and, and when you said you never wanted for anything, um, it was all you knew, right? So if you don't know better or other than that, um, then you don't feel as though you're, you're missing something. Also, too, we were very lucky in that all of our, my paternal um, grandparents and my and my parents and our family that lived in Orange all worked in factories, and the factories were right close to home, so everyone walked to work. My my grandfather worked in the first Stetson hat factory when he came from Italy, mm-hmm. and my my mother, all the women worked in pajama factories. The men worked in plastics and metal factories. So it was pretty interesting, and the work was pretty close to where we lived. So everyone was available whenever we needed them, and we were all within a block or two of the church and the school. So communities like that, for the most part, were pretty safe. And you never had to worry about meeting someone or not finding anyone that you know might be close enough if you had a challenge in, in school or a challenge in walking home or a challenge with homework. There was always someone around to help. And as a result of working in factories, they they got to bring home some beautiful things. I mean, I can tell you that my family, all the kids had the best pajamas because the women all worked in pajama <laughs> factories. 
So that's a nice never perk. wanting for pajamas. Yeah, a nice perk. Yeah, <laughs> fun. You know, as the um, oldest, my, did excuse me, I, I didn't want to interrupt. Right. I was just wondering if, as the oldest of the three girls, that you felt a responsibility along with the rest of the community to be kind of watching out for for the little ones. Well, I was not only the oldest on my father's side of the family, but I was the oldest on my mother's side of the family. So I was the first born into both into both families. And mm-hmm. so, yes, it was a big responsibility. And, and honestly, today still is. In that, when it comes to making sure that everyone is where they need to be and holidays are celebrated and, and family reunions happen, um, it really is a sense of responsibility I have to my parents, to my grandparents, and to my family to make sure that happens um, it happens regularly so that we never lose touch. And so the family that lived, uh, my dad's family that lived in the Oranges, my mom's family lived in New York and New Jersey. Uh, you know, everyone starts to spread out after a while, but we try very hard, and we have a large family in Canada as well. So we try very hard to stay in touch as much as we can. And, you know, I say thank God for the Internet and Facebook and Instagram because now we get to see everyone almost live on a daily basis. Yes. Sometimes we find out more than we want to, but we do get to see the kids and the grandchildren and, and the cousins and aunts and uncles so that it really does keep us together yeah. quite nicely. T- uh, what part of Italy is your family from? Uh, Benevento. My grandmother was born in Avellino, my father's side, and my grandfather also. My mother was born in San Bartolomeo, which is uh, in the hills and the inner country, in interior of uh, just above and to the west of Naples. Okay, so is that uh, more northern? No, more southern, but more still southern. We, they were to the left, left, to the west and east of Naples. Okay, um, okay. I've been to, been to all those areas, and they are some of the as they were described to me as a child. Yeah, so, well, it's um, a... Still as rural. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful country. Um, you do you describe growing up? Your neighborhood was was quite mixed. It was a mixed neighborhood of uh, Irish and Polish and Italian and um, African American. And um, tell me, growing up in that kind of a neighborhood, how did that affect your your outlook on people in general growing up? I think that we we saw no difference. We really had no, certainly no bias, certainly no um, expectations beyond being friends and being all in the same home situations that, you know, that each of us were in. We had the largest Italian family on the block. There were two or three Irish families. They had many more children than the Italian did. My one friend had nine children, one had 11. So they were big families, bigger than the Italian families. And our, our, the one Polish family, was, there was only one Polish family on the block. They had seven children, and there were lots of kids on our block. And the African-American families were, there was predominantly a, a, an African-American neighborhood. And, I mean, we all learned from each other so much. I mean, I can tell you I learned to dance from my African-American friends. They were the best dancers of all. Um, my Irish friends, we learned um, to be funny and let go and enjoy Um, and I think the most intense of all were the Italian kids who were the disciplines were immensely um, restrictive but 
for the most part, it was a great way to grow up. I don't think I would change it. Mm. I think um, it was a great way to grow up. Yeah. Well, being exposed to all those different cultures, you know, right on, right in your own um, neighborhood, what a great opportunity, um, especially to my, my father. Go ahead. My father played. Uh, Santa, my father played Santa Claus every year for the neighborhood, and so all the parents would leave their bags outside the house on the steps. And he would go from house to house, grab the sack that was for that particular family, and go upstairs. And I never, by the way, we never knew that it was him. None of us knew. Wow. He was really wow. great at it. He did it every year for the entire neighborhood. It was terrific. How old were you when you yeah. found out? Well, I'm going to embarrass myself by saying probably, probably up to 10 or 11. Okay. That's about <laughs> right. <laughs> That's about probably the right age, I think. <laughs> I always wondered why he wasn't home for that particular occasion. Right. But he, never, he seemed to be working late yeah. every time on Christmas Eve. Well, kids today find out things, you know, from the Internet way before they should. That, we didn't have that worry. Um, listen, you mentioned your dad. Your dad received a Purple Heart and the Congressional Medal of Honor as a prisoner yes, of war. Yes. Did he ever talk about that experience with you? Oh, well. It was hard to get my father not to talk about it. I think one of the things in our family that uh, we all remember are the stories. And one of the things we miss the most and not having them around are, you know, our, my grandparents and my father is not hearing the stories from them, the genuine stories. Mm. He was an intensely proud American. When my husband uh, and I went um, to France for, for a trip, we went to Normandy and we were... I was talking to my father from my cell phone, and I said to him, Dad, I'm standing. My father was one of the first waves of Omaha on Omaha. And I said to him, I'm standing by bunkers, and I said, let me count them off for you. And he, I counted them, and he, he kind of estimated where it was, and I was allowed to take some sand home from that bunker. And that sand, that sand stood proudly in a jar on his table for the rest of his life. So, and I happen to have that myself now. So he was an incredibly proud American. He he loved his experience in the service, went to his reunions every year religiously. And we had flags, flags in front of our house as long as I can remember. Mm. Um, you also talk about, as a young girl, uh, sometimes not knowing what... Um, which dad you were going to get when he came home at the end of the day. Talk about that for yeah. a few minutes, what you meant by you that. You know, he had, he had a really unusual um, work situation, and he embraced it. He worked in factories his entire life. He, had, he was very involved with immigration, desperately trying to get the people that work for him to be able to stay in the U.S. and bring their families here. Most of the people who worked for him were from Colombia because he worked the last 20 years of his life in the metals industry and copper, and that's mined in Colombia and Ipaca and Bogota and Venezuela. So he did a lot of traveling in that area. And as he did, he would bring people back to work, and he would get close to their families. Um, when my dad passed, there were over 70 children that were his godchildren that we had never met. The children of the children, he, the people he brought here to work in his factories who came to pay their respects. So he would come home exhausted. 
he worked in factories where there was no air conditioning. When you're when you're mining, when you're melting copper, factories are three and four and five hundred degrees. They're outrageously hot. He would come home absolutely exhausted, never angry, but always exhausted, and always with a project to do, always with a project about who next does he have to speak help to be able to bring their family here to the U.S. So, so admired him for doing that. Yeah, and. How did he speak to you and your sisters about leadership and career? Did he talk to you about that? You know, I think there's a different dynamic when there is no son in the home and, and only girls. It is a different dynamic, but we had yeah. we had lots of uncles who were like brothers, and they, I mean, there was never there was hardly ever a moment when there were just the you know the five of us in the family. There was always someone living with us from Italy or staying with us temporarily, so we had a lot of men around. But I would say that he he did that mostly from from example. He led from example. Um, I remember when I started my business, he was so proud of me. And uh, because he had always worked in factories, he thought it would be a really good idea to put up a time clock at the front door. <laughs> you know, and because make sure it was very really important that, to be on time. Make sure everyone yeah, absolutely be on time and yep. be able to check in and check out and because that's the world he knew. Yeah. And it was so difficult for him to understand that that wasn't the style of leadership I was looking for, certainly not in an agency at that time. Right. But he uh, he used to pop in every once in a while and just take inventory, basically walk around, make sure everyone he thought they were doing their job. Yeah. Um, so it's a very different kind of leadership. Yeah. I want to read a quote um, that you said, hard work never hurts you. In fact, it prepares you for the road less traveled. I was wondering when I read that how much of this mentality, uh, whether it came from, you know, watching your your father and your grandparents and your mother working so, so very hard, uh, but did it also come from your time uh, being a single mother, raising a daughter on your own? Well, I had lots of, yes. I think I think what's one of the most difficult things to do, and I've certainly had some difficult challenges over the years of being, you know, being in business, um, but being a single parent was the most rewarding and the most challenging part of my life. Um, for the early years, my mother took care of my daughter, and during those years, I was working ferociously all over the city, having a wonderful, wonderful career, traveling all over the world, you know, doing my work that I did for DuPont and several other textile and fashion um, brands. But my mother passed away very suddenly, um, very young, and my daughter was about four and a half at the time. And there was this piece of reality that just was so, uh, weighed so heavy on us. What do you do now? And, you know, back then, it wasn't as easy to hire someone to come in and live in your house, although I will tell you we had a large amount of people that did do that for us. It just didn't work as well for us. Mm. For me and my daughter, we had been, you know, so family-focused and had such solidarity and such, you know, comfort in her taking care of my daughter and the family being close. So that's really what propelled me into starting a business. And actually that, that recommendation came from one of my many godfathers in business at DuPont. He said, um, why don't you become a consultant? Then you can still work for us. And you can also work for a lot of our customers who keep asking us about you and wanting you to work for us. And that's really how I started the business. Wow. There's, 
work ethic, work ethic ran through was very, very significant part of our upbringing. Mm-hmm. My, you know, aside, aside from the time clock, which we never put in, um, there was an expectation in our family. There was no downtime. There was only productive time. And honestly, don't think that that did any harm whatsoever. I think it prepared me for some of the challenges I had later in life, certainly as a single parent. Mm-hmm. Um, never, you know, I married I married my childhood sweetheart, and who would ever think I'd be divorced when my daughter was an infant? Things happen in life. And it propelled me forward to be that much more diligent and efficient with my time. So, What was your greatest fear um, as a single mother? Gosh, that's a good question. Not doing all the things that I needed to do in my mind to be the perfect parent. Mm-hmm. And is there such a thing as a perfect parent? I mean, no. missing and <laughs> never, never wanted to miss anything. Very hard to schedule your business life around a child's plans and, and school schedules. And, you know, something would pop up and I wouldn't be able to be there. And it was, it was a lot of guilt over many years. Mm. So I really wanted very hard to make sure that she was better prepared for the life that I was living in case she had that life better than I was prepared because no one ever prepared me. In my family, everyone got married, stayed married for 60 years, had half a dozen kids, and they had a half a dozen kids. And, you know, it just was a fait accompli, but um, that wasn't the way life, that's what life gave me, mm-hmm. so. You know, you mentioned a gentleman at DuPont, um, and what a wonderful thing, first of all, that he came to you and suggested, made a suggestion for you um, about consulting others. Obviously, he believed in you. Is You know, it was a very interesting ride. That, that, that position was a very interesting ride. I had spent, um, I had spent, when my daughter was an infant, I was working uh, in the city and working in New Jersey, and I knew once once my mother had passed that there wasn't any way I could possibly afford to stay working in New Jersey at the job that I had, the, the predominant job that I had. So I ventured back into New York, and it was uh, it was a real it was a real struggle to find the right position. And I worked; I had such an illustrious career. I mean, I think part of the most exciting piece of my life has been even leading up to and then through my business that gave me so much opportunities. I work with so many amazing people. But that said, it was it was not easy to, you know, to make that decision to, I'll call it somewhat settle down. My friends were all New Yorkers. They couldn't believe I would start a company in New Jersey. Why would you ever do that? Why not start it in Manhattan? And while I would have loved to have done that, it didn't make sense for my personal life. So New Jersey was where we settled and where we grew a business. And the travel still happened, but the advantage I had um, was being able to take my daughter with me on many of those trips. They were terrific to me. The textile industry at that time, I'll call it chemical industry, was really, DuPont was a, a major client a major project for me and a major devotion for me and I had always I can honestly say always had godfathers uh, within the business men who appreciated who I was gave me free reign to and even if they had to take credit for what I recommended they only did that 
to make sure that what I recommended would be done. So there was never a contest between us. It was never any dissension for me. Mm. You know, we talk so often about men that are mentors and men that believe in in women. How about a woman in your life that uh, was always there and supported you? Well, I certainly had a lot of family in my family, women in my family that supported me. Mm-hmm. In business, I had a lot of, I had a tremendous amount of talented people that work with me, men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that I've had any women mentors over the years, but I will tell you this. Toughest boss I ever had was a woman, and I probably learned more from her than anyone. And that's because her expectation was so high, and I believe she knew I could deliver what she was expecting. And so she pushed me harder than anyone. Um, I remember I was writing for, she had a a fabulous magazine that I was writing for, and it was research-based and trend forecasting was what I was doing for her. And I would go home on the weekend, and she'd hand me something on Friday night at 5 o'clock and say, get this done by Monday morning. And it was a, a tremendously complex story that I had to write, and it was several pages. And, of course, in those days, we didn't have computers. We had a good old Smith Corona, not too many things to make copies on. And I came in with my, my manuscript and handed it to her and she'd read the first five lines and say, this is not going to work. She'd tear it up, throw it in the garbage and tell me to start over and have it done by 5 p.m. And I think that she taught me to be a good writer. I think she prepared me for all the writing that I do in my, in my business and in my life. And so I, she was, it was hard, hard knots, <laughs> tough school, um, but it was good because it taught me a great deal. And I think that was her style of mentoring. Perhaps not the style we'd love to have, but the style that prepared me for what I'd be doing much later in, in my career. Mm. I couldn't, you know, as you were telling that story, I was thinking about the movie Devil Wears Prada. Oh, uh, yes, right? that was So a, a tough, tough uh, female boss who actually believes in her employee and uh, is going to try to push them to, you know, put forth their best work. You know, I think, I think you know, coddling isn't necessarily the right style of mentoring. You, I think you have to know the person that you're trying to mentor yeah. and know what's going to work best for them. And I think, yes, when I watched that movie and I saw her throw her coat across the, the uh, desk, I remembered her well. I used to pick up her lawn, her dry cleaning, and put it in her apartment in New York on 39th Street. Wow. So, an awful wow. lot, an awful lot came back in that, and and she, you know, dragged me around from, you know, place to place and country to country, and and always had another assignment for me when I thought it was time to, yeah, settle down for the day. So. so when it was time for you to leave, how did she support you in that decision? She did not support me in that decision. It was a little bit of a disappointment. She actually. Blame, told my, the rest of the staff that it was their fault that I was leaving, that I love working for her, but I didn't find them very effective in their jobs, oh which was not wow. at all the case. Wow. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know, she had an ego, and uh, I think it was, I think no one had left her. I think that was one of the problems is that no one really left. It was one of those dream jobs, and no one really would defy that, leave her and defy her in any way. So mm. she was brilliant. I did learn a tremendous amount from her. 
listen, Pat, we're we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. When we come back, I want to I want to go right to uh, 1982 when you decided to start your own company. We'll be right back. Sounds great. Thank you. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website. FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F O L E Y H I L L S L eygroup.com or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Women to Watch on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. And my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm speaking this afternoon with Pat Fiore. She's the founder of Fiore Brand Communications and Consultancy, uh, based in New Jersey. Uh, Pat, I wanted to to talk about your uh, decision to, to found the company, which I believe was in 1982. And uh, in what my first question really is in, in working in this industry for over 30 years, I wanted to know what comes to mind is the most significant change that you've seen in marketing and communications and branding due to technology. I actually think technology is helping in a lot of ways. It's changing the dynamic of the business. It's absolutely making a difference in how we do what we do, the technical aspects of it. But um, the challenge it's put before us is, for, from a brand perspective, is um, is trying to maintain brand loyalty, which is way down these days, because there's so much so much information, and unfortunately, everyone trusts the information they read. And I don't know that enough people, consumers in general, the way the industry does, dig deep enough to know what's real and what isn't real. Socials change the game and brands will become better for it, I believe. Brands need to be deliver more than promise, brand promise and performance. They need to deliver more. They need to deliver responsibility to the world, take a stand on what they support and what cause or benefit they will have to the world. 
Um, you know, communications are multi-platformed, and, and all, my, all of them have to be integrated. Messaging needs to be continuously refreshed and connect to the consumer they're trying to speak to. Um, brands need followers, and they have to deliver value to get that. And smart branding is more than a great logo and a snappy, you know, rally cry. It's deep-rooted in authenticity and honesty in the essence of, a, of their heritage. A lot of companies don't have heritage, but heritage can be developed. I'm not saying made up. We can find it. That's one of the things I think we do really well in our businesses, trying to find the essence of a brand, trying to find the real, the real roots that brought that brand alive. And I think that that's not done enough. Um, and I think more of it has to be done. Tell me what some of the, your key questions are for a new client to get to that essence. Well, years ago, my questions, my, what I would say to clients is, ship me a box filled with every single thing you want me to know about you. I don't care if it's pictures of your grandmother pulling, you know, pulling apples off a tree. I don't care if it's your father working down in the factories. I want to see everything that you lived so I understand who you are and what brought you to to the moment today when we're talking. And then I, I ask them to tell me what their vision is, and that's usually where everyone kind of freezes. Right. Most, yeah. most companies don't think about tomorrow. They think about today. And the hardest part for anyone building a brand is to only focus on today and not focus on tomorrow because there is a roadmap to getting where you need to go, where they want to go. That most companies don't, most companies, and this is not just small companies about to launch. I'm talking about big companies who are even more so when they have a momentum and they have positive sales and they have growth, they're not looking far enough down the road to make sure that what they're doing today is going to positively impact what they want to do tomorrow or what they will be doing tomorrow. So it's a, it's a huge challenge. I, I want to take a step back for a second, Pat, and talk to you about when you made the decision to, to launch the company. You know, it, it takes a lot of courage uh, to start your own company. And I wondered if there was a, a catalyst for that decision. Was there something that happened in your career and you, you were ready to do it? I don't know that I was ready, but I it was circumstantial. My mother passed away. My daughter no longer had someone to take care of her. We had a, I had a lot of, you know, people I hired, not, not family, um, that could take care of her. And she was preschool at that time. And it became, and I was traveling extensively. And it became very clear that I would not continue to be in her life and she would not have the support that she needed if I continued to work for someone else on their schedule, not mine. So when I went to uh, DuPont and told them that I was, really felt strongly that I had to leave. And I also had you know, a family falling apart. My mother was the matriarch. Very difficult to replace that person. Mm. So um, I went to them and told them, and when, when my godfather there uh, suggested that I become a consultant, it made great sense. And I said, that's great. And he said, you know, a lot of our clients and our customers will want to work with you. And sure enough, he gave them permission to. So at that time, the... I worked on the launch of Lycra and Comax. So mm -hmm. the client base or the customer base at that point were wonderful companies like Capizio and Danskin and Gildemarkt and Olga, intermittent apparel companies. I had a training in FIT in intermittent apparel and active sportswear. So it was really, it was home to me. It was comfortable. And so many of those companies became 
immediately became clients. And at that time, I wasn't doing major branding for them. I was helping them do brochures and helping them for point at point of sale and point of purchase and trade shows and things that I honestly had never done. And so I need to rally around me uh, people in the agency business that I met and could help me with the execution of many, many of these things. Um, and I hired an art director, one of my first hires, and he came out of the toy industry. I had met him at a photo shoot. And so we had a mix for the first uh, four or five years of the business of only fashion and toys. What a bizarre mixture, right? Yeah. <laughs> Those were our clients. Yeah, that's interesting. And it was so exciting. We we did, he was an art director at CBS Toys, mm-hmm. um, and we did the launch of Hello Kitty and the design work for um, Oh, wow. That was a big brand, and yeah. It's a big brand, yeah. and Hello and My Little Pony. Mm-hmm. So that was a long time ago, but we had, between his talent and my talent and our and our mutual connections, we had absolutely no problem building the business at all. And at that time, I brought, because I part of the business I didn't know much about because I never had much money, um, I hired my brother-in-law, who was um, who was uh, one of my sister's husband, who was working at Tom McCann. I said, I can't pay you any more than you're already making. I'm not even sure I can pay you what you're making, but I know you can figure this financial piece out. Can you come and work for me? And he took the leap of faith and left a corporate job. And he was a troubleshooter for them, opening retail stores, and he had great experience. And he came on board and took charge of managing people and process and production and finances. And so it really gave me a chance to just go out and and meet people and network and pitch and present and build, bring business in. So. And sometimes that's, yeah, you know what, sometimes in the beginning, if you can bring people on board who, you know, again, who believe in you and perhaps you're not, um, you know, bringing in that big revenue yet, um, that can be so key to your success. We actually did our first year in business close to a million dollars. Wow. Which back then was That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Tell me, can you talk about a favorite client uh, and or project that you're most proud of? Sure. Uh, gosh, there's so many. I don't know that I ever had a client that I didn't enjoy. Um, sometimes their, their industries change and that makes for challenges that make it very difficult for them to be as happy as they might be, not necessarily with us, but in general. Um, we worked for um, Treasure Island they had at the time we met them. They had three stores: outdoor patio furniture and Christmas. It was joyous because they were seasonal, and the seasonal business is always so exciting. So, and we brought them from three stores to eleven stores, um, and that was fast growth for them. And back in the in the eighties, lots of fashion brands. Um, we launched Oscar de la Renta's uh, shoes and handbags. Here in this country, Kenneth J. Lane's handbag line as well. If you know Kenneth J. Lane, the the uh, jewelry, the jewel, jewel to the stars, mm-hmm. he was a riot. Yep. Always pretty high profile. Um, Chow Bella. Here's a company who had a fabulous product that had had absolutely gorgeous packaging design for them. But when it when it when they went to retail, the pack- packaging didn't connect to consumers. It was gorgeous. It had it was all Italian language on it, but no one can read Italian. And 
if you watch the behaviors of consumers when they when they go to the frozen aisle and they open a, a the door of the ice cream dessert area and wedge their their carts up against it and try to find what they're looking for none of it made sense the colors didn't match the flavors the flavors didn't match the the um the type of ice cream uh, gelato was in the package and everything was in it. much much of it was in italian so Honestly, who knows how to, who knows what Sangonaccio is except me, you know, so <laughs> it didn't work. So we took a, and did the rebrand for them, and that was a very exciting project. Mm. Um, we're working on some very, we're still working on some very exciting projects now. How um, about, again, a, a diverse mixture. Okay. Tell me, how about a campaign that perhaps was a failure or, or something you considered a failure? Is there, is there, an experience like that that you can talk about and how and what you learned from that? Hmm. This is going to sound, I hope it doesn't sound arrogant, but actually I really don't think that we've had any campaigns that were failures. I will say that we work on a lot of natural organic ingredients, flavors and fragrance uh, in the industry. We work, the common thread through most of our clients is, is um, their high trending industries which means my, the trend forecasting ability of, the, of, the, of our company, you know, staying ahead of the times, ahead of where the world is going, yeah. makes a big difference for them. Yeah. I would say that sometimes what we find out long after, I've read tremendous amount of clinical studies and a lot of in-depth consumer testing that not all the information was exactly what it was made out to be. And sometimes we find that products are not as performing as effectively mm. as we expect them to. Okay. So that can be a challenge. And, and so, um, but we do an awful lot of our own beta testing. So before I take a client on, I usually know fairly well how, how true to form they are and, and to their promise, their brand promise. Okay. So. Tell me, what, what do you think it is about you, Pat, that allows you to, to be this, this trend forecaster and, an analyst, you know, what, what, um, what helps you to do that? I think I have a lot of grit and I certainly think I know I have a lot of gratitude and I have an endless curiosity. So I've been told I'm a great idea synthesizer. I know I'm a rapid learner and heaven knows I'm adaptable because in my life I've had to be. There was an interesting, you know, I've always tried tried very hard and I've had great writers working for me over the years and everyone's tried to capture how do you explain what it is that I do in my head that before computers connecting dots that no one could see and I think I recently watched a TED talk that was very fascinating to me uh, a gal by the name of Emily Wapnick who talked about this multi-potentiality she talked about you know why you know and why it's hard to choose one path and why most people shouldn't be made to choose one path if they have what she calls multipotentiality. And I think that might be the one description, although it's rather strange to say. I'm, I like, I'm, I'm driven by learning new things. I never stop learning. There's, I mean, my mother, when I was a child, when I would ask a question, she would point to the encyclopedias, go, go get it, figure it out, mm. go find the answers. Yeah. Um, so I think that being good at digging deep, asking the tough questions, which my clients will tell you I always ask the tough questions, 
but I think that tough questions are important to answer. And I also think that, you know, we have, uh, I have a really wonderfully talented people working for me. I really think that we have the ability to, to do this level of conversion from, you know, what is to what can be. And I think that's one of the toughest things to do. I don't think that I'm totally unique. I think my idea synthesizing is a, a unique ability, but I'm always looking for ways to leverage or to um, to build whatever it is I'm working with or working whoever I'm working for. So I don't just look at what's in the moment. I try to look beyond that, and uh, that makes us a little bit different, I think, in the world of uh, brand communications. In, in... You know, we spent I spent I spent a lot of time traveling, and I think. My experiences in life, my home life, my you know, being a single parent, in my business life, and I think in my travel have made me alert, aware, and sensitized on a level that many people are, don't have that ex- opportunity because they don't have that kind of exposure. Would you consider yourself a compassionate leader when it comes to your team? Gosh, I hope they think that. Um, I think so, because I really look at the people and not just the process. I really look at where they come from and how they develop and what they need. And so and tell me what your, your philosophy is um, for motivating your team, you know, and getting them to, to perform at their best. Let them do it the way they need to do it. As long as the end result is going to be productive and what we need, I don't care if they do it standing on their head, running in the park, Swimming, swimming, it really doesn't matter. One of the things that I always found so interesting is that companies really want to regimate everyone. And I don't know how that's a productive use of time. I can tell you that for me, when I really need to do creative thinking, I get in the kitchen and I cook for three hours. My daughter would always laugh and say, uh, had a lot in your mind last night. My right mom, and she'd wake up and she'd find five pies, three cakes, and, you know, a couple of, a couple of gallons of soup that was made the night before. But everyone has, I think, everyone has to find what what triggers their thinking and their talent and their creativity. Mm-hmm. And I think whatever that is needs to be done. I, I've worked, you know, I've worked with students a lot in my in my career. I worked with a lot of universities trying to motivate either MBA students when they're working on their thesis or young young people who are in their second or third year of college and looking to find jobs and trying to find their way. And one of the things I think that we're lacking in education is getting them out of the classroom and into the world. I think, unfortunately, there's not enough exposure and experience. Um, and I don't care if it's experience walk, dog walking or working at retail or working at Dunkin' Donuts. I don't care what that experience is. It's nothing. There's nothing beneath anyone that they shouldn't try because you learn something everywhere you work, everything you do. When when we had retail clients, when we had a lot of retail clients, the day after Christmas, I I drag all my staff into the stores and watch the returns. I thought it was really important for them to experience that. And so we would get behind the cash registers and watch returns and handle returns with our clients because those are very busy days. And I think that was the best learning they could have. I'm sure not all of them love doing it, but I really think it was the best learning they could have. I, you know, I so agree with you. My my son happens to be a student at Drexel University, and I'm 
will tell you that co-op, yes, you know, uh, program and the and the way they do that um, does exactly what you just described. You know, gets these kids out into the work world and exposure uh, to networking and just the real world before they graduate, which really prepares them. Well, I think unfortunately everyone expects a paid intern. We paid internships, but as far as I'm concerned, everyone should be out learning all the time whether they get paid or not, because you do get paid. You get paid in, in, in developing your mind and your instincts and your intuitive ability, and I think that that's what we're missing from educating our kids. I think, you know, my daughter, from the time she was, my daughter Kristen, from the time she was like 12 years old, and she had to work. So she had a choice. You can go to school in the summer or you could work in the summer, but either way, you're going to be doing something that I'm not going to be worried about because I have to work. So she would get on her bike and she would, you know, pedal down to the local park and hand out flyers about helping moms with birthday parties. She was, was she that her really idea? Well with that. Yeah, was that her, her? It was her idea. Yeah, that's awesome. She liked to sponge paint and she liked to, you know, to decorate T-shirts and stuff. So, you know, that was fun. And mothers would love that because it made the party more fun and unique. And and she made some money. I mean, she, you know, she'd make forty, fifty dollars, whatever it was. But that's more than most twelve-year-olds will make. Right. And right. so, b- before she even had working papers, she was working quite a bit. And I think that's she's a very strong strong woman and i and i believe that that that's because of that work ethic tell can what is she doing today she's actually living in florida she worked with me for almost 15 years and we love working together it was great we had amazing trips together learning journeys um all over the world um from you know from england to italy to belgium to the orient we did we, you know, walked through, you know, through the groves in Calabria and scratched the skin on the Bergamont to see if it was ready to be picked and did presentations at the House of Commons in London to businessmen who were looking to do business in the U.S. and walked the, the chicory root fields in Belgium and worked with Dr. Striazzi in his limoncello factory in Italy and got to watch 900 buffalo as they made buffalo mozzarella in, in parts of Italy. So we've had wow. some wow. incredible experiences. And, and all of those, built, I think they build character. She's working as a, a, a marketing director at a, at a very fast-paced a company in Florida right now, very happy living in Florida. And, and it's a really interesting job transition for her. But she and her husband love, love being near the water, and they're raising their two daughters there, and I think they're doing a great job. But she has intuitive ability that came from being also being raised by a single parent. I think there's, you know, challenges and benefits to that. Um, I'm sure there are times I miss things that I didn't want to miss. But I also think that she became stronger as a result of that. So, Yeah, that's terrific. Um, Pat, tell me what it is about telling other people's stories that you enjoy. I think most people... Most people in business don't think of their journey as a story. They don't think of, you know, the value and the relevance and how it resonates and how it it strengthens their offer and what it is that they're trying to build. I can tell you a very interesting story. Um, I have a client from, you know, for a few years out in Washington. He, He actually grows mint. And one of the things that I found so amazing when I met him was that no one had ever captured the story 
of his journey, and the journey was amazing. And he'd been selling mint for many years. He has a very, very successful company. But no one really asked him to explain it. Because the moment I met him and, and saw what he was doing um, and how he was doing it, and his compassionate love of the business he was in, I decided that story needed to be told. And so we spent, he flew in, met me at New York Airport, spent five hours talking to me, and I was able to capture it in a way that he tells me was what he, you know, what he knew and what he felt comfortable with and was real, which was really exciting. Um, we worked for a company years ago. One, one of the more exciting projects we worked on was a company that was uh, a young man who worked on his father's farm and a chicken farm. And I don't know if I won't go through the whole plight of the chicken farmers for you, but um, they they were trying to convert chicken litter into organic fertilizers. And that I spent so much time with chicken farmers. Now, and if you ask me what I plan to do in my life, that probably would not have been on my list of one to a hundred <laughs> things I wanted to do. You could not have but foreseen I can tell that. You that yeah. I could not have foreseen that. But the experience of doing that gave me so much power in words and so much understanding of what their challenges were and gave us so much more fuel for storytelling and PR and advertising and trying to package and market them in such a way that was very effective and very successful for them. But without having done that, I don't know that we could have captured that. Because mm. if I had asked them, they couldn't have explained it. I had to go down and live it. That's right. Yes. Do you try to do that often? You know, really go firsthand to your clients' place? Of if work? I had to choose the thing that I love the most in the business that I'm in is I like to be in the field and on the farms and in the factories, mm. and that's where I want to be. I was I just going to ask see. you what your best, you know, with all, I would imagine a typical day is, you know, you're analyzing data, you're, you're strategizing, you're consulting, you're developing brand stories. What do you enjoy the most, or are you best at, do you think? That's, that's what I enjoy the most, because I think I'm, I'm good at, at, I think people trust me, and I think I'm good at gathering that information and authentic real information. I'll tell you a quick story. All the years that um, that DuPont was working on Lycra and trying to get that at a small company in, in North Carolina called Alba Redemption, they were trying to make intimate apparel, you know, stretch underwear and bathing suits at it with Lycra. And it wasn't working and it wasn't working and it wasn't working. And so I decided to go spend two weeks down in the factory. And so I worked in knitting. I worked in dyeing, I worked in sewing, I worked in packing and in shipping over those two weeks. I just planted myself in the factory. And I met a very interesting man. He was had been there for many years. His name was Henry. I'll never forget him. And I said, Henry, I don't understand. Why can't we get this done? Why is it the samples are not coming out right? And he kind of pointed to me and, and pointed to a, a, one of the stock rooms and said, I'll show you. Come with me. So he he, over the two weeks, I, I built a lot of friendships there. Um, people were bringing me their turnips from their, from their, from their farms, so I knew I made friends. Um, <laughs> I walked in the back, and he, and he unlocked a little safe door of a cabinet, and out he took the sample we've been, everyone had been begging for for literally months. I said to him, Henry, this is perfection. Why, why have you not showed it to anyone? 
And he said to this, no one, no one asked me in a nice way. I learned so much from that because he really, he could do it, but he wasn't going to do it because someone demanded it of him. He wanted to do it because someone appreciated it from him. And so, you know, from that moment forward, we got everything we needed mm. and it, and, and everything took off. But it was that those are the people who really make the difference in success. Mm, that's such a and great so that's story. Where I like to be. <laughs> yeah, it's a great story. Well, you know, you're you're the opportunity that you have to first of all just meet people across so many different uh, backgrounds and in so many industries is fun. You know, it sounds like great fun. Do you do you plan to just continue working as long as you can? Well, that's a question my husband would love to answer. <laughs> do you have two different? An- is your answer different than your <laughs> husband's? <laughs> Probably, but um, I was very lucky about 15 years ago because I met the one true Renaissance man who who really seemed to be able to handle a working woman at the level that I work. So I think think I'm pretty lucky. Uh, Would he like me to to take some time? Yes. But I have a very flexible schedule. I really have, I can do my work from anywhere I am. I really, I don't have to be sitting at one desk an infinite I'm doing it so mm. you know that that thank God for technology for that as well I mean there's really not a down moment but also there's not a moment where you're not connected that's so. right yeah will I do it forever I don't know there's things that I still have to do and want to do and I and there are clients that still I think need me and want me to continue helping them so sometimes it's um, just a matter of you'll know when it's time right You'll know when it's time. Well, I think it'll be time when I'm not excited by the work, when I'm not feeling I'm making a contribution, when there's nothing, no benefit coming from the work. And I don't think that's any time very soon. Yeah, there you but go. But I will say this. I am trying to be much more selective. Good, so. good. Listen, Pat, that's, that's all the time we have today. And it was great sharing your story. Really interesting. And I thank you so much for, um, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It was really fun. I appreciate it. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Have a great week.